This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Coming up, we'll take a look at animal welfare on the Central Coast as we come out of the pandemic. A lot of the spay and neuter programs during the pandemic, those all stopped. So we have a lot of accidental puppies that were born during the pandemic. Now we have one to three-year-old dogs that are in shelters. That's Robin Coleman of Woods Humane Society in San Luis Obispo. Also, there are plans to relocate an aviation museum from Chino to the Santa Maria Airport. We have 150 aircraft in our collection, and a good percentage of those are on public display. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, January 30th. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with the grape nut and part two of Betsy Nash's conversation with Libby Agron, director of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County. In part one, they explored the cultivation of grapes at the mission and the contributions of Pierre Daladay. Up next, in part two of the conversation, how did we arrive at today's thriving Central Coast wine industry that started with immigrants, specifically Italians? We're going to pour a Zinfandel. Excuse me. It has some sediment, so I'm straining it and aerating it a little bit. It's a 2017 Zin by Gluntz from Dante Ducey Vineyard. And may I just say how delicious this is. Well, I'm excited that you brought the bottle that shows it's from the Ducey Vineyard because that brings me to the next really important wave of pioneers who came into the county. Um, And that's the Italians. I don't want to skip over the Yorks. I want to go back to that. But but I do want to talk about the Italians for a moment uh, because the Italians who arrived in our county, unlike other counties of California, were from northern Italy near the Swiss border. Mm -hmm. So they didn't come with any knowledge of winemaking or growing grapes. It was too cold in their climate. So they were wood clearers, woodsmen, as they called themselves, and they were also dairymen. And so... When they came here, they came following family members, many from the same village, and created a community which is still very much uh, alive in uh, Templeton in our county. The, one of the uh, interesting families was the Ducey family, Sylvester Ducey. He came to the county um, around 1920 to visit a brother that was already here involved in clearing wood. Oh, okay. Uh, and trees in our dense forest so that there could be fields and uh, Makes sense. Uh, grapes and cattle. And Sylvester Ducey actually was very much of an entrepreneurial person, and it was hard labor wasn't for him. He really had accumulated enough money. He was in his 40s by this time, and he went into the Paso Robles area, which was developing as a community, bought a hotel, and he established the first delicatessen, Italian delicatessen. Oh. And he had a restaurant in some of my documentation that says it was Italian, some it says it was French, perhaps it was French-Italian. Could have been Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> but he definitely brought the Italian culture uh, into our community in Paso Robles. And then from there, um, he began to uh, look at the possibility uh, and discuss with his fellow Italians that were already here in the community the possibility of planting vineyards. Now, they didn't really have any knowledge about this, but 
what had happened that would cause them to even think this? Well, prohibition had happened. Oh, oh. So, so what's that, 1920? It went into effect in 1920, yeah. which meant that you could not be a commercial winemaker, sell or transport wine. You could make wine at home. You could do um, over 200 gallons, approximately 200 gallons per household. So it's not per person, but per household. <laughs> and Italians, like many cultures, had always made wine at home. Even if they were not really growing grapes, they'd get grapes from a neighbor or something okay. and make their, their wine. And so the Italians in our county realized that in every American city, there was a very large Italian population that needed grapes to make wine and were into home wine making. So that was one trend going on as soon as Prohibition went into effect. But then home wine making in general became a huge thing. You'd find ads in magazines. You could buy concentrated bricks of Zinfandel grapes. Oh, no kidding. You could buy juice and you could yeah. take it home and do whatever you wanted. You just couldn't <laughs> transport it. You couldn't sell it, but hmm. you could make it. Hmm. So the Italians saw a business opportunity. They were already farming. They already had dairy cows. And what they decided to do was, let's plant vineyards. We can ship all these grapes to all these Italian communities. We have connections, because they do. All the Italians at that time had connections one way or another. You couldn't really ship them. You could ship them by train. Oh, no kidding. So if you think about it, you know, it was the 1920s. Yeah. Trains were running. Yeah. We had uh, stations in uh, Santa Margarita area, Paso, and they shipped Zinfandel grapes to the East Coast, but also importantly into California's markets, Los Angeles and San Francisco, which were huge distribution points. And that's uh, the, and like every other county, you know, where the, the production of grapes dropped away, people abandoned their vineyards, not our county. <laughs> we have all these wonderful microclimates where we can grow all kinds of grapes, but Zinfandel ruled because it was the most familiar grape and sweet grape and it was met the palate of the times. So... The Italians doubled, tripled, quadrupled the amount of land that was planted in grapes. So they brought a very strong influence into our county mm -hmm. as a source yes. of premium grapes. And so we're looking at 1920 to when? Well, till 1934, when each of the major five families of Italians then immediately were bonded as wineries and started making wine. And this brings us to another really important contribution of our county to history. Okay. Imagine, as I said earlier, all the other major Italian wineries and many other wineries in California had shut down, abandoned their fields, gave up. Wow. But once Prohibition ended, they all wanted to get back in business. I shouldn't say all, but many did. What happened? A lot of those were Italians. They contacted the Italians in our county and said, what can we do? Um... And they said, we, have, we are all ready to go. We're bonded. We have our grapes. We'll make wine. We'll send it up to you in railroad tank cars. You can bottle it under your own label. Just <laughs> buy it from Brilliant. Us. Brilliant. And that's how the California wine industry got back on huh. its feet. Huh. Because when you think about it, if you have to replant a vineyard in the 1930s, yes. you're four or five years away from really a harvest of grapes that would make good wine. And those vineyards that they just left go, I mean, think of all the work that would have taken and the capital outlay and all of that. That was brilliant. It was brilliant. And another thing it established is we, we had always been shipping grapes from our county somewhere else. 
we weren't known for making great wines, even though there were great wines made here. Oh. And there and there were wines actually in the late 1800s that were winning awards, 1900, 1912. Uh, the German population in the eastern part of the Pass Robles area definitely were doing very well um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of marketing their wines. So, you know, we had successful winemakers, but the volume of grapes were really sent out of the county okay. to other winemakers. Okay. You talked about the five families. Was that, was yes. that what you said? Well, can you name them? I of course you can. can. Of course you can. <laughs> we're doing an exhibit on this very topic about what the Italians have contributed to the culture of San Luis Obispo County because I don't think anyone really has looked at it this way before. And I couldn't have seen it either until I'd spent a lot of time interviewing and documenting the family histories of these people. So we have the Ducey family, yes. which brought up this conversation, uh, who have five generations in basically the same spots um, with two major locations of vineyards. There's the very famous Benito Ducey Vineyard, and I do want to come back to that. Okay. Um, and then there's the Dante Ducey Vineyards and all the other family vineyards um, that are now run by uh, Michael Ducey, who is the the son of Dante Ducey, okay. who established okay. uh, the vineyards that are on the west side of 101 near Highway 46 mm-hmm. or Main Street in Templeton. And the Benito Ducey, which is across the highway, um, almost also at the intersection of Highway 46 and, high, and what we know today as 101. So those are major, important, old vines in Findel mm. vineyards. Mm-hmm. But Mike has really made a tremendous um, addition to the family a heritage by creating vineyards in other places in the county and growing many varieties. Oh, okay. And his um, daughter, Janelle, is really the first, certainly the first woman winemaker in the family that is commercially um, available. Her wines are available at J. Ducey Winery on Highway 46 West. Um, her, there is a wonderful story about a brief time uh, when Benito Ducey, um, her uncle, was also making wines, but that's for another day. I want to answer your question about all five of these families. Okay, we have the Ducies. We have the Ducies. We have the Pazentes. That's the, the first sin I ever had. So good. Yes. That was my jug wine. Well, and Rhoda. Is the Rhoda another uh, yes, family? Yes, okay. Rhoda's another family, a those, third family. Th- those were my two first, 1969, when I moved up here to go to Poly. But I bet you wouldn't know this. The very first Italian who had a first winery and the first vineyard planted was Lorenzo Norelli. Oh, Norelli. No, I didn't. The How Nor- did I miss that? Well, um, probably because at that particular time he was doing something else. Oh. I mean, he um, had moved his vineyards. But I would just say that in, uh, in around 1917, um, he was able, he and his wife bought property adjacent to the York Mountain Winery. Mm, okay. He worked in the fields, the vineyards of York Mountain, and was trained uh, in viticulture by that family and became close to them for the rest of his life. Later on in life, when I talked about the Italians shipping um, after Prohibition wine to other wineries in California, they did that in partnership with the York family, who also were were making all kinds of wonderful Zinfandel. Mm. So it was the combination of the two sending uh, their wine, pressed grape wine, to uh, these other vineyards and wineries in Northern California. 
Libby, you have an exhibit you mentioned uh, for going up to the Paso History Museum. Yes, um, we as the Wine History Project do exhibits, we do films, we, we write books, um, any way we can to let the public know what the history is. We're also archiving that, that history permanently, so we'll have a, an archive which will so be also great. at UC Davis and hopefully it'll be also at Cal Poly. So but, great. But UC Davis definitely will have it, uh, duplicates of everything we have. Um, so... What we do at the Paso Robles Museum is they have given us about a third of the space and uh, we have a wine history gallery there. So we've just closed the Amphora exhibit on December 31st and we're opening one on the Italians, how the Italians changed the landscape. Oh. And some of the families were mentioned today, but you'll love it um, when you see it because uh, you'll see that dense landscape of oak forest that yes. we were talking about earlier. Right. And then you'll see all the changes that were made. But I think also it really talks about the impact the Italians have made on our county. And I feel like they have not give, been given enough credit for mm. the, the culture that we have. Mm. Because the Italian culture has been absorbed into our culture. We have young Italian winemakers like Brian and Steffi Terizi. Uh, who own the, the Eto Pasta Company. And, Ooh, and yes. You know, so we're, we're bringing in uh, more and more food, Italian food. But, you know, when you think of the restaurants we have, yes, uh, we have some incredible restaurants. Bernatavola is one of them. Yes. Uh, Giuseppe's is another. I mean, this Italian influence is really important in our county, and I want us to recognize and celebrate it. Sounds great. So that's the uh, Paso Robles History Museum. Yes. And that's around City Park? Yes, right? it's right in the middle of City Park in the old Carnegie Library building. And I'd Oh, like, that's right, of course. If Just like our in San Luis. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Right. And if you're a member of that museum, which is like $30 a year, you are invited to... Um, Every other month, they have a wonderful wine tasting. They're called Wine and History Nights, and they're open to members for free, but you know, not to the general public because the members always <laughs> take the, the, all the spaces. Yeah. And I'll be there helping, of course, um, them telling their stories and, and taking those tours through the exhibit. If you're interested, the Paso Robles uh, History Museum is pasarobleshistorymuseum.org. A great organization, and I mean, if they're paying attention to wine, you gotta love it. We're going to have some final thoughts here with Libby Agron of the uh, Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County, and I've asked this of many of my guests on this program. What about the future for wines? I know, I know we can't spend a whole hour talking about this, but the future of wines in San Luis Obispo County. We've made it from we've made it for over two hundred years, and what's going to happen with climate change? None of us know for sure, but what I think, and I've one of my mentors on this is John Albin. I do feel because we have such a variety of microclimates in our county um, that we can continually experiment with different varieties to see what will continue to grow. There are some places in the world that where wine has been produced, you know, for thousands of years. Right. I do believe myself that San Luis Obispo County is one of those places. I think we have all of the elements with, we're lucky to be very close to the ocean, mm -hmm. that fog layer, you know, as long as it continues, will provide uh, the, the nuances that are necessary to maintain our different terroirs in the county. So... Um, and we probably have to be developing more and more drought-resistant Drought-resistant, right. Uh, we have to work on our water, uh, how we manage water in our county. It's yes. a very big issue. Yes. And uh, we have to look at 
how we produce the wines too and and the ways in which we can do it with with the least amount of of water and Mm -hmm. waste in our county but we have um great potential i think much more than other areas and we're very accessible we're accessible to the ocean we're accessible to the north to the south and I think that also makes us, as a center point in the state, an extremely important place for wine production. Continuing our history that goes back to, you know, exporting grapes in the 1860s to Los Angeles. I mean, it all started there and um, continues to this day. Well, that's so. That means both economically, it should we should stay solvent, if you will, or thrive, but also because of just of the climate itself. We're in a pretty temperate zone. Um, and as long as we're willing to be flexible, am I hearing that correctly, yeah. with the varieties we choose and and more perhaps creative with the way in which we produce the wines that we should still be okay? I think so. We have wonderful soils here. Remember, we have a lot of volcanic activity here, great yeah. volcanic soils. Um, so yes, I, I do believe that we will, if you and I could peek in in about a thousand years, <laughs> I think we'd still see wine production. Well, that that's a great, great way to end our talk. Libby, thank you so much. This has just been fascinating. Appreciate your time. Well, please, everyone, go to winehistoryproject.org. I want you to, to know that there are many ways we share this information, and whether or not you're a wine drinker, the history of our county is so important, uh, and I want you all to share in it. Thank you. You bet. Glad to have you. You can hear Betsy Nash's entire conversation with Libby Agron, director of the Wine History Project of San Luis Obispo County, on our website, kcbx.org. This is Issues and Ideas. I'm Carol Tangeman. My guest today is Robin Coleman, Community Engagement Manager at Woods Humane Society in San Luis Obispo. Robin, you have been with Woods for over eight years, and it looks like you started working at Woods after adopting your best friend, Dexter. That's right. And you are currently the Community Engagement Manager. You represent Woods by developing relationships through targeted community outreach and just basically increasing public awareness of Woods Humane Society's various programs and services and initiatives. So welcome to Issues and Ideas. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. A lot of us have a story about pets. I can imagine you at a party Mm. and someone (laughs) finds out what you do and then they're telling you their stories. Stories is the best. I love telling the stories of Woods and the animals and the people that come through, but also I absolutely love hearing those stories. I could be pumping gas, I could be grabbing a coffee, and as soon as anybody sees that Woods logo, they immediately ask me, do you work at Woods? Oh my gosh, and here goes the the phone comes out, the photos start showing, and they are my people. So we relate and we have that in common because like you said I walked into Woods doors just like so many other people do I had been pretty new to the area and here it was this beautiful little animal shelter that people were friendly and warm and welcoming and it smelled good and it looked like no other shelter that I had been to and uh, as they say uh, the rest is history as far as I fell madly deeply in love with my boy Dexter who is going to be 11 years old this April and he has been the absolute joy of my life and he uh, totally changed my path in life and a career. I had been um, in property management previously 
my experience at Woods just turned me upside down. And I just thought this is such a special place. I love people. I love pets. I love this community. So here I am almost nine years later and getting to be a part of people's stories. Since your time at Woods, what I still consider the new facility, but you say it's 15 years old. Yes. I always describe it in between Cal Poly and Cuesta because I feel like most people can identify those. Um, But we are right next door to the county shelter. So that makes life just a lot easier. We are partners. We are neighbors. We are right next door. So when people come out, they visit both locations. It's just a a good neighborly um, setup. So yes, Woods is out um, off Kansas Avenue on Oklahoma, uh, and we are right next door to the county shelter, which okay. by the way has a brand new building. So if you haven't it's been a- out there, you need to go. I did. I did check it out. I used to volunteer there a lot at animal services, uh, walking dogs, yes. as did Neil Losey here at KCBX. He did that as well. That proximity was wonderful, and people from Woods were always coming in and out and taking dogs for spays and yep. neuters Still and do. cats. <laughs> so spend just a few minutes talking about that relationship people so often uh, mix up the two. And so we are definitely two separate agencies. We are Woods Humane Society, private nonprofit organization. And then we have our county legal agency. So that's the San Luis Obispo County Animal Services. Those are your tax dollars at work. That, That is a government agency. That is the legal agency. Woods has great name recognition, so I think people first think to call Woods or to come out to Woods. Maybe if you've lost a dog or found a dog or found a cat or you, you want a license or rabies question. And actually, that is the county's duties to, to oversee that. We are not able to take in strays, lost, found, those types of things. Ah. It's very important to know those differences. If you mm-hmm. have an animal go missing, you want to report that immediately to the county. They are the officers that will go around, um, think of things like neglect and uh, hoarding situations. That is the legal county. So we at Woods would be a private nonprofit. Of course, we do adoptions. We have some great community programs. We're really a resource to the community. And again, funding, very different. So you've got your government funding, and then you've got private nonprofit, which is all of those generous people in the community giving 20, 40, 50 bucks at a time who honestly have helped us to grow and do what we do in this county. So those are the two main differences. But we do work together. And a lot of people kind of think we might might be in competition and we are so not. We both are helping animals. We are fighting the same fight. We are bettering the lives for people and animals. So we are friends. We are neighbors. We work together. We want you to come out and visit both so you can hopefully fall in love with one of their animals or one of our animals. We bring animals over on a weekly basis from the county shelter. And is that uh, where you get all of your animals that are up for adoption? No, where do they come that's a from? good question. Uh, again, a lot of people kind of assume that, but we definitely take from our county shelter, depending on their space, their needs, our space. And also we get them from owner surrenders, which is really an important thing to be able to offer this community. Uh, something Mm -hmm. in addition to having to do that at the county shelter. We do do it based on appointment because we have to be able to plan ahead. We have to have space, a kennel, uh, staffing, that kind of thing. So we have a whole intake department that deals with owner surrenders. We also are able to help different rescue partners and other counties that are in desperate need of help. And that is something I would say over the last five years, we've been able to grow and reach out. We live in such an animal-friendly, loving community for the most part that people do choose to adopt and that's their number one way to 
get that new cat or dog in their life. And so we are fortunate that a lot more people adopt here than other counties and they are just in a tough spot. So we love to be able to help those rescue partners uh, and truly help the ones that are out of time and highly adoptable oh. animals who are just other places are out of time, out of space. And unfortunately, we just get inundated on a daily basis with calls and emails of animals in need and we just do the best we can and we bring yeah. in as many as we can. That's why we promote adoption so much because everyone that goes out that front door, we immediately can arrange for the next one to come through the back door. Right, and when you say out of time, yeah, unfortunately, not the fun topic to talk about, no, but it is not. a reality is. Um, in the animal welfare industry, and it's something that everybody should know about. We have made huge strides in progress, I would say, over the last 20 years when it comes to animal welfare and animal sheltering. Um, but unfortunately, there's so much work still left to do. Uh, too many animals, not enough homes. And that's why it's so important. We talk a lot about spay and neutering. We offer low-cost spay and neutering. We're advocates for that. It is the responsible thing thing to do for your pet. Uh, unfortunately, when, when you work in the industry and you see those eyes looking at you in those kennels and cages and you know there's so many more waiting to come in, every adoption is important. Every spay and neuter is important. So we want to control that population. Animal shelter workers are tired and shelters around the nation are full. It is a really challenging situation post-pandemic for animal shelters. So unfortunately, euthanasia is a reality and it's not just sick or what people would label unadoptable animals. These are highly adoptable animals, puppies, kittens, you name it, that are out of time at other places. So we are so grateful we get to help. But we just always want to do more, more, more. Of course, of course. If you're joining us, my guest today is Robin Coleman, and she is the Community Engagement Manager at Woods Humane Society in San Luis Obispo. At the beginning of the pandemic, I think I was speaking to Dr. Anderson okay. over at uh, County Animal Services, and the kennels were pretty, pretty close quiet, to empty. Yeah. yeah. So what's changed? You know, it was a very weird situation for everybody, work-wise mm -hmm. and whatever industry you were in. We all just took a pause and figured out what we were going to do the next day. Um, Woods, same thing. We lessened our numbers. We thought, what if we don't have staff to come in tomorrow? Who's going to take care of the animals? What if we're not allowed to come in? So we wanted to keep the numbers somewhat at a lower rate in case we had to close our doors for some reason, because really we are the last place for animals in this county. So we didn't have a backup plan for where these 60 dogs may be able to go if all of our staff isn't available, you know, the next day. We had to plan accordingly. So some weird way, everybody just kind of paused. It didn't seem like there were a lot of strays. There were weren't a lot of calls with people saying, I, I have a dog that I can no longer keep. Everybody just kind of paused for a little bit. Um, and that's other communities as well. So things were a little quieter. Things were a little slow. We did put more animals into foster homes just as a backup. We, we did see some people kind of interested in adopting that maybe they wouldn't have adopted if they didn't have that change of lifestyle. What the world was seeing, an increase of adoptions, Woods wasn't quite seeing that same because we had lessened our numbers a bit and kind of slowed things down where other shelters who weren't getting foot traffic were weren't getting adoptions on the weekends they were 
opening up to a whole new audience of people willing to foster or adopt in other communities that weren't as adoption savvy as Woods had already been. So we didn't quite see what all the headlines were seeing. We got animals into foster. We, we did some adoption from fosters. And we definitely got some animals into homes because people were kind of ready to embrace that lifestyle during the pandemic. Yeah, your home. I mean, it, it would feel like a good time to bring a pet so you could do the training and... Yeah, just to have a companionship yes. too. It yes. was such a lonely right. couple years. Yeah, and even if you had family members or kids or a spouse, there's just nothing like that love right. from a cat or a dog. So that's what we were seeing at the be- beginning of the pandemic. And we kind of picked up a little bit in the middle of the pandemic, started trying to figure out how can we still help more animals while still keeping everybody safe and healthy. And then I don't even know if I can say post-pandemic because I know we're right. still reeling with a few um, lingering right. things. Knock but, on wood. Uh, let me find some <laughs> wood <some>. here. Um, <laughs> but you know, at some point it went from the pause button to the fast forward button. There was no in between. So it immediately went to full speed ahead. So many people needed our help exactly at that same time. So we had other rescue partners begging for our help. Their kennels are full of six, eight dogs at a time. We had community members that were out of work, out of housing, that were desperate to bring their animals to woods. Um, kitten season came upon us. Um, mm-hmm. So right. that's that. it just takes a lot of resources, and it's just a lot of animals in need. Um, so we, unfortunately, have been dealing with a bit of a weird time Uh, and it's too many pets that need a place to go and just not enough places. Adoptions have kind of been a little bit slower post-pandemic for us. We are seeing a lot of large young dogs. People want an assortment of dogs to pick from and it's not just woods. People have assumptions that sometimes it's just a certain breed that's found in animal shelters and we see all different breeds come through. Uh, Just some breeds take a lot longer to get adopted than others these days. The most common dogs that we are seeing nationwide in shelters are German Shepherds and Huskies. Shepherds shepherds and and Huskies. Huskies. The the reasons you think? So my thinking is um, those are very active, very smart, protective dogs. They're not for everybody but they're gorgeous Mm -hmm. creatures. They also tend to be in a lot of movies, a lot of um, kind of social media stuff where the looks of them get a lot of people wanting them. And I mean, it doesn't get cuter than a husky puppy, right? But those husky puppies grow up and they're 80 pounds and they're very rambunctious and smart. Um, They're known for being escape artists. So I think huskies are one of the most common breeds picked up as strays. They get out of their fences. They don't have microchips. They don't have tags on, you know, just again, that responsible pet ownership element of it. Um, German shepherds, as, as magical as they are, there's a reason that they get picked for those type of working positions. They're intense. They're serious. They can be a little naughty when they're bored, uh, both Huskies and German Shepherds. There's a reason that they like to have a job because if you don't have a job for them, they're going to find a job. And it might be, you know, eating your blinds or knocking over your fence. Oh, no. um, so, right. yeah, unfortunately, they're not for everybody. They are wonderful, wonderful animals, and everybody should be aware of some of their tendencies. Um, but it, it can just depend on when you get 
with them as well. Sometimes if you have them from when they're puppies and you can socialize them, they are just the total love bug, couch potatoes with you, you name it. But some, if they've been in shelter for months, they're bored, they're wound up, they've been passed around a few times. And again, like I said, those movies, sometimes as, as cute as they are in those movies, I, I'm, I'm guilty of those uh, Taco Bell Chihuahua and Legally Blonde. I was all about the Chihuahuas back in the day after there watching Legally a, Blonde. And yes, then you saw Chihuahuas everywhere, around. right? Absolutely. And so now Huskies have kind of become the new Chihuahuas in animal shelters. And unfortunately, breed restrictions, which is not something we talk about enough, but Pet-friendly housing in this area is a true challenge. One of the number one reasons people have to surrender their animals is because of housing restrictions and breed restrictions. The long list of those larger dogs. Yeah. So that's why they stick around the shelter a little bit longer and they do worse the shelter, right? A little yeah. a little poodle at a shelter can hang out for a week and get some TLC from us and do, yes. do just fine. A husky being in a kennel for six, eight months, that is tough. That is not what they were designed to live in those kind of conditions. So unfortunately, larger dogs are taking longer to get adopted and they do worse being in a shelter environment. So that's some of our challenges that we're facing right now. If you're joining us, my guest today is Robin Coleman, and she is the Community Engagement Manager at Woods Humane Society in San Luis Obispo. Another thing that happened during the pandemic is a lot of the spay and neuter programs that were going very strong over the last decade during the pandemic, those all stopped. So we have a lot of accidental puppies that were born during the pandemic that just kind of got passed around. And here we go. Now we have one to three-year-old dogs that are in shelters because they don't have anywhere to go right now. Yeah. And that's sad. And it's, uh, and I have seen people's especially children's faces just light up when they see a puppy and yet they'll just they'll pass by the older dog in the next kennel oh man and I love it so hard I'd take five older dogs over one puppy any day of the week puppies are adorable and cute they are a lot of work in the beginning but they are great for families especially if you have young children you have livestock you have other animals that's a great thing to add to your family and they kind of grow up together and they get used to the ruckus and the rumbling and the tumbling and yeah if you take an older dog or an older cat and throw them in a very active you know maybe hectic lifestyle, they might be a little more shocked in that situation. But oh man, my heart goes out. I love a senior cat or dog. Show me the old one. Show me the sad one. Show me the one, you know, that needs the TLC. Those are those are always my favorite. <laughs> the cat that just wants to find that spot of sunshine on the couch. Just just lay see, there and just offer their purrs and their presence. Yes. Yeah, our cattery, it's the only quiet place in our whole shelter, I feel like. That's where you can go and take a little breather, go in one of the cat rooms and visit with them, read to them, hang out with them. It's just a really relaxing place. And then you go the whole other spectrum is the the dog area which is pure pandemonium usually <laughs> high energy <laughs> very high energy and high volume now one thing that i had heard this was a couple years ago and i found it fascinating though about cats everyone says keep your cats indoors mm-hmm. but some cats are they're, roamers they're, they're roamers and i had heard that animal services was they weren't always necessarily just picking up those roaming cats. That's true. A community cats is what we call them at times. So there are owned cats that people maybe like yourself, let them go out for a couple hours during the day or lay on their patio. Um, 
And then there are community cats that are true community cats. They don't really have an owner. They have an area that is kind of their area. And so there's a lot of topics and discussion about community cats and TNR, which is trap, neuter, and release. And we do uh, a lot of that in this community, thank goodness, um, because there's still a lot of work to do, but we have done a lot of work in the last 15 years with community cats. So there's two different areas there. What was happening is a lot of people would grab a cat, think it's a stray or missing, but it was just like your neighbor six houses down. And then it ends up being like a posted and say, hey, does anybody want this cute orange cat? And then it goes, you know, 30 minutes away to a friend's house. And so here we go. We got, we like have a cat that was just hanging out, probably chasing a mouse or or a lizard or something and so there is a change in the industry a bit to just not pick up every single cat that you see out there we really advocate for microchipping that is the best easiest cheapest way to get reunited with your animal and yes people would say the safest thing for a cat is to keep them indoors of course you're not going to get hit by a car if you're indoors you're not going to get missing you're not going to get yourself in trouble stuck in a tree um, because we know those cats are curious they do end up wandering a lot of missing animals are found very close to their home but we also find they can be found miles and miles and miles away from their home so really 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 important to microchip it's so affordable we do it at woods for $20. You literally just enter your email address. If somebody ever finds your cat or dog, they'll do a quick scan at any vet office or a place like Woods or the county shelter will scan an animal that may be found. And it can be reunited with the owner within minutes where this no, that's could nice. be a whole different outcome for the animal if it's not microchipped. Because a lot of cats don't want to wear the ID tags and collars. Microchipping is so easy and so affordable. And people even now do really cool things like little tiles and tags that kind of like a GPS tag, especially for dogs. And if they are escape artists and they've gotten out once or twice, I have heard stories of people having those little air tags. They pull up their phone and they go, oh, he's down the street at my neighbor's house. You know, let me go grab him. So we do need to be proactive. That is one of the things with owning pets is to, it's our responsibility to make sure we know where they're at. Yeah, yeah. And are there other places to get microchipped? Do they do it at the vet's office? Any vet office should be able to do it. Woods does it by appointment, so call in advance. Um, Before the pandemic, we were able to do some fun like microchip clinics where we could get a lot of animals microchipped at one time. We haven't got those back up yet. Once in a while, the county does something fun like that. At our Wiggle Waggle Fall Festival event, we usually offer microchips through the county. So we are big advocates of microchips. All animals that are adopted through Woods are already spay, neuter, microchip fully vaccinated we give you starter bag of food collar we really set you up it's a great thing to do and a great deal but microchipping is the way to go for sure and i think they do the same at county animal Mm -hmm. services with the microchip and we want all animals going being adopted to be microchipped yeah and And registered do you have an upcoming event yeah, so we are in the, you know, January is always kind of like a reset, look ahead at the year. We do a lot of smaller events in the community where people may be hosting benefits for us, which is one of the 
ways that we can grow and actually survive being a nonprofit. Um, but we have big events coming up. Our biggest event is in June, our Tales Gala. So June 3rd, that's a little like sneak peek for your listeners. We haven't even got that date out on our calendars yet, but that's our kind of our fancy big event that we do. I would encourage everybody, if you're not following us on social media, you're missing out on the cutest content. It will bring a smile to your face, (laughs) events coming up, training tips, classes, all kinds of great information, along with our website, woodshumanesociety.org. You can look at our cute available animals. You can check out all of our events, our programs, donate if you love what we're doing. We cannot do it without the donations that come through. It is just, it's not the fun part to talk about, but it is the necessary part. We're a nonprofit and every single animal that comes through is costing Woods money, which means we need to raise Mm -hmm. that somehow. So you can donate, you can volunteer, you can foster, you can share those posts. There's something everybody can do to help this animal welfare industry and this kind of bit of a crisis that we're in right now. Thank you for coming by. Thank oh, it's you, Robin. my pleasure. Thank you guys so much. We'll talk much. again. I can't wait. I'm Carol Tangeman. I have been speaking with Robin Coleman, Community Engagement Manager at Woods Humane Society. This is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Up next, correspondent Tom Wilmer explores plans to relocate an aviation museum from Chino to the Santa Maria Airport. I'm Tom Wilmer reporting from the Santa Maria Airport. Come along and join me for a fascinating conversation with Jane Hinton, Director of Development, and Steve Hinton, President of Planes of Fame. You guys are based in Chino, California? That's correct. Yeah, we've been there since uh, about 1970. Open to the public or a nonprofit aviation museum. Actually, we're the oldest non government aviation museum in the country. It started back in 1957 as an official nonprofit. Here we are in Santa Maria. Jane, do you want to tell us how this happened? We have 150 aircraft in our collection, and a good percentage of those are on public display. How many are airworthy? 35 of our aircraft have airworthiness certificates, and then we have a number of static display aircraft. There are a lot that aren't on public display, and they're in storage, and we determined that we really wanted to get more hangar space and get things accessible to the public. Um, So part of the motivation was... Things are probably pretty filled up in Chino, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Bursting at the seams. Our yeah. hangars are just about as stuffed as they can be. It's it's Tetris getting planes in and out. <laughs> so we needed more space, and we started looking everywhere. I mean, the whole U.S. was on the plate at the beginning, and we started crossing things off for one reason or another, whether it was snow or it was too active or the runway was too short or too far from a population base, there's all kinds of things that eliminated some airports. And we came up with a short list and Santa Maria was on it and they um, offered us 24 beautiful acres and wow. um, we were very lucky to secure a, a location here. But it follows that you're going to have to build some hangars and storage facilities. Oh, yes. Uh, We're still developing our master plan for the site, but for phase one, as we call it, we're putting up a pretty substantial initial build. So it's Building Alpha is a three-bay hangar, um, which we're hoping will be 56,000 square feet um, and include 
aircraft display and a maintenance shop supporting our flight operations and a area that serves for educational programming and kind of an auditorium um, style hangar so that we can do events. When you go and see an airplane sitting on the ground, it's one thing, but when they come alive, it really sparks an interest, and you see that spark go in a lot of different directions. Kids could be interested in the science and technology angle, how do these planes work, how do they fly, or equally they get excited about the history and why were they built and where and who flew them and that kind of thing. So that initial spark of interest, which is really our strongest public program, is is the flyable aircraft, Mm -hmm. um, is... It's really just the beginning for a lot of these kids. So intrinsic in your model is engaging with the community Mm -hmm. for a lot of different reasons, even for economic survivability. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about what you see in your programming for the public. Our local programs include a strong membership base. We like to keep our programming fresh so that we have different planes flying at different times, different presentations, lecture series, things like that. So local visitors can come back time and again and see different things when they come out to the museum. We also have a very strong volunteer program, which is really great to see all different ages getting involved with the museum in a really hands-on way. From an economic standpoint, you really depend on that, don't you? Oh, absolutely. We have a very bare-bones staff. We, we rely heavily on our volunteers. And then additionally, just admissions, you know, people coming through the door, maybe they buy a t-shirt or maybe they make a donation. Those kinds of things really add up and, and make a big difference for us. Where does your funding come from? Ooh, all kinds of different sources. Donations is a primary source of funding for our general operations, but also special initiatives like a specific aircraft restoration or, or a special project such as the expansion project here at San Maria. It also comes from admissions to the door, the gift shop supports us, received a few grant funds, and also our aircraft, they work hard for us. And so um, performer fees, we attend probably a dozen shows. We send our planes all over the place every year. Yeah, on and off here. (laughs) More than that. So we do warbird rides, and we maintain them so that they are able to be used in that way. Steve, tell us about the different aircraft that are flyable that we could go up in. The FAA has granted us what's called an LHFE, Living History Flight Exemption. We have the P-51 Mustang. We have two Mustangs. So it's a two-seater? Well, it's a passenger, yeah. It's on a dual control. Intro to the airplane and a good briefing and then then about a 20-minute flight, yeah. The P-51s, the ones that are two-seaters, were they modified from the original? Well, World War II, the P-51 was a single-place fighter. But in training? But no, what we've done, or what is common with a Mustang, is you remove a 75-gallon long-range fuel tank out of the back, and you put a seat back there. Military only modified, or North American who builds the P-51, only built, I think, 12 dual-control P-51s. Back in the war, remember, they they built like 15,000 P-51s. The training uh, flying a P-51 is just similar to really the rest of the airplanes. There's... You know, the military pilots trained and then introduced and checked out in different airplanes. But the basic training, the airplanes aren't hard to fly. They're, you know, good, good training and they're, you know, they're a delight to fly. They're fun to fly. You so know. you've flown one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's see, 50 years. I've been flying a Mustang for 50 years. Wow. Yeah, I first sold a uh, Mustang when I was uh, almost 20. I think it was just 20, yeah. Give us an overview of some of the aircraft flyable that you have there. Yeah, well, we mentioned the Mustangs. We've got the P-40 Warhawk. 
we've got the P-38 Lightning, then our P-38 Lightning was actually based here. I was going to ask, wasn't Santa Maria Airfield a training yeah, for P-38? P-38s, yeah. yeah. P-38J, that was, uh, J is a, is a kind of an early model airplane, but it was built late in the war because the way they do batches or whatever, but it did, never saw combat, but it did, just for a very brief time, I think it was based here for about nine months. You obviously have flown that aircraft. Oh, yeah. Oh, Tell yeah. us about flying that. Is it a fun uh, aircraft? It's, yeah, the, you know, all of them are fun. Some are more fun than others. When you tie in the history of these planes and the technology, uh, you know, how they were built and Back in those days, you think how many planes were being built? I mean, oh my gosh! We, in the World War II era, the United States and their allies built, I think, around 400,000 airplanes in those five years. Right here in Southern California, you know, there was Lockheed, there's Douglas, there's North American, you know, Northrop. They subcontracted different things, so really, it was the aviation center of, you could say, anywhere in the world. Really, does that partly explain how you guys were birthed down at Chino? Well, in a lot of ways, uh, Mr. Maloney, our founder, was a young man in uh, World War II, you know, going through uh, high school and building models and reading the newspaper. Of course, the, the country was, we're all on the same page, so to mm-hmm. speak. And then him being uh, very interested in history and seeing after the war how these airplanes were just, they're cutting them up, melting them down. And every opportunity he had, his father owned a uh, auto body shop, and he was in a position to be able to collect some, a lot of this stuff really for nothing sitting there and, and you know mm-hmm. and when he started the museum there there weren't really any museums around so we were able to uh, get a lot of planes that were just basically donated yeah that's really cool yeah we have p-47 we have f-86 the mig-50 these are the ones we fly mig-15 we have a t-33 that's an air force trainer yeah oh yeah yeah Right, and those are the ones that we kind of fly a lot. We have a B-25, we fly an AT-6, the SBD, a Navy a dive bomber, a TBM Avenger. Wow. Grumman Bearcat, Glot Corsair. A little bit more, some high points of what you would experience at the Plains of Fame Air Museum. Well, we have a lot of very rare aircraft, and of course over time, you know, they will eventually end up here. You know, we've got a... One of the largest collections of original Japanese aircraft. We have a, you know, the only real Japanese Zero that flies. It's got the original Sakai engine in it, and it was captured off a of Saipan at the end of the war. And and the logbook is a who's who in aviation that flew it. You know, Lindbergh flew it, and Corky Meyer, all the test pilots flew the airplane. And, wow. Yeah. And it's still flyable. Well, when Mr. Maloney got it uh, for the museum, um, it wasn't in flyable condition, but it was all complete. Mm-hmm. And back in the 70s, we restored it to fly again. And, and have you flown that one? Oh, yeah. We took it to Japan. We've had it there three times. Wow. Yeah. It's the symbol of the Japanese. It's a beautiful airplane. flies really nice. It's just not uh, built to the standards of uh, you know American airplanes. It was, it's super light, and it uh, handles Beautifully, it's an aerobatic airplane compared to a Hellcat, which is a big tank, a beautiful flying airplane, but it's, but it's armor-plated, and it's got six fifty caliber machine guns. You know, really no match. You know, the Japanese didn't evolve. They kind of missed it in the middle, thank goodness. At the very end, they had some pretty amazing airplanes, but, you know, they stuck with a certain tactic and theory. And, you know, if you read the history books, you know, uh, Chenault was talking about uh, his tactics. He had an inferior airplane with the early P-40s. Claire Chenault. Yeah, Claire Chenault, sorry. But they could still, in China, they they had very good combat record. You know, the Japanese were flying mainly Oscars at the time, which is even a more nimble airplane than the Zero. But, um, you know, they'd be shooting them down and, and the Oscars and the, the Japanese are doing aerobatics and loops and stuff trying to evade when you know Chenault was using the speed of the airplanes you know the, the tactics were what really you know kept us in the war actually so. yeah that Burma theater is just humbling oh. 
Yeah. Guys flying over the hump at what altitude? As high as they could go, yeah, because the, the hump is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles of 20,000-foot peaks. Yeah, and on pressurized aircraft. That's right. That was Cold, uh, inside that was and out. That was the deal. Yeah, the B-29, really, when it came out, that was, I think, the first real pressurized airplane, yeah. Mm-hmm. The Connie you were talking about earlier. Talk to us about that yeah. aircraft, because... That's a classic, and I think Howard Hughes was involved in the design of it. Well, um, yes, he had a lot of influence on it. Of course, the reason that Connie went to the airlines, maybe, because, you know, he he fell in love with the airplane, and uh, that was kind of the modern-looking airliner, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, in its day, and it was the, the pinnacle of a propeller-driven airliner. And, and, uh, and that, I think, of all classic warbirds and aircraft, is so elegant today. Yes. It looks beautiful. Kind of... Brief description. Well, sure, I'll tell you, the Connie that uh, the museum had, uh, we acquired it back in 1992. We did some trading with uh, the Army. They had it at Fort Rucker, and we traded uh, a helicopter and a few of the th- little things yeah, because they were going to cut it up because uh, wow. the, the display area that they had assigned for that airplane was being be utilized for something else. And that was... President Truman. General Douglas MacArthur's airplane. Okay, MacArthur. Yeah, MacArthur, yeah. They had two Connies that they used for VIP. So the sister one was Truman's was Air the, Force One, correct? Right, and he, he had another one also, though. The, but they had the, the Super Connie after that. Mm-hmm. But this was the original, what they called Columbine. But the one we have was called Batan. Once uh, MacArthur was uh, let go from his service, then they used the two airplanes together. But And again, uh, it's still so elegant, yeah. so wonderful to look at. Yeah. But, you know, in our effort to raise money for this project, for instance, uh, we did sell the airplane to a foundation. It's being rebuilt now where we, we have had the opportunity to work on it. It's almost done. It's with a few months to be ready to fly, but it's a beautiful airplane, and you'll see it in the magazines, I'm sure. And, and it's painted just a little different than it was when, when MacArthur had Back to Santa Maria. You guys are so excited. We're here at Ground Zero. <laughs> Talk to us about what you're most excited about to see happen. Well, uh, you know, there's a big process. Like Jane said earlier, you know, we've spent a lot of years finalizing where we think we want to go. When we finally uh, got to a position where we could officially request here, and it was very exciting, and the airport uh, was very interested in having us here, and so... Uh, We've been able to enter into an agreement we're all happy with, and, and now we're going through the process of design and permitting and raising money. That's the biggest thing is uh, our original budget is more than doubled from what we thought it was going to be wow. for our first phase. That's just a sign of the times, as we know. I mean, uh, when we first started looking into the hangar of this size, the price of the hangars doubled. So, wow. yeah, it's just the sign of the times. It's, mm-hmm. it's the way it goes. But, but we do have a plan in place with the help of many people and many supporters. And, and the airport here has been very helpful. It follows that a museum interpretive center would be central to your build-out? Well, it's uh, most important for us to uh, keep the collection all together. Right. You know, so that's Which implies a lot of hangar space. A lot of hangar space. It's also going to be a huge asset to the airport. You know, we have a lot of international visitors that come visit at Chino. You know, they'll fly into L.A. and look us up. A lot of people visit us from other countries. So now they'll be coming to Santa Maria. Yeah, why not? One of the things about this site in particular that we're excited about is what we call ocean view property. From, <laughs> from the back of our hangars, we'll be able to see the runway. And obviously for our flying demonstrations and, and those kinds of programs, you can't get a 
a better view than that. At our location in Chino, we're quite far from the runway, so we do flyovers and, and things, but it just doesn't show as well as being able to see the takeoffs and taxi and landing and all of that extra stuff. So this site in particular, I mean, it couldn't be a better setup for us. That's really cool. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit more about the different aircraft that people will be able to go up in as passengers. Well, the Living History Flight Experience Program um, is very specific to the Mustangs at this point, and we're hoping to expand on that program and get further letter of authorization to do some more standard category aircraft, such as possibly the T-6, or we've got a Stearman biplane, things of that nature. How about the 25? The 25 is also a possibility. We don't have the green light on that one yet, but it's not out of the question. It's just not something that we currently offer. We're trying to say here it's not like a Cessna or like an airliner if we want to take you for a flight we could do it it'd be simple as long as you're not paying for it but as soon as you pay for it it puts an airplane into a different category uh-huh. and these particular airplanes are not certified in a category like an airliner or a Cessna 150 or something it's a special airworthiness certificate so you're bound to some different rules and regulations 30 years ago it was no big deal 20 years ago it was a little bit and 10 years ago it was like you better start doing something so that's what's happening now it's typical of uh, you know, layers of regulations and, and liability. And mm-hmm. We had the program running for a long time with a variety of aircraft, and then when the new regulations came in, we said, oh, let's just take a minute. We paused the program, kind of got our ducks in a row, so to speak, and then we relaunched last year with just the Mustangs. So it's been very successful. The FAA has visited us a few times and checked everything out, and it's been all good. And so we're hoping to build on that program. So it's not like we don't want to do it. It's just we're, we're taking it slow. Mm -hmm. Um, to make sure that we keep the quality of the program as high as it can be. But the P-51 is not dual control. It is not, and and dual control is something, um, that's a special training certificate, or that's not something that we'll ever really offer through our program. It's it's a ride experience, although we do get requests for aerobatics, and I want to control it, and (laughs) everybody wants to do that, but it's just not possible, and and we're trying to just keep everything as by the books as we need to be. Okay, back to Santa Maria. Talk to us a bit about what you're most excited about in the build-out when it opens to the public. Well, aside from the runway view, so to speak, the build at Chino happened over time, and it happened as we could afford hangers, and we put them in places that just, oh, we can put one over here, and it's kind of a hodgepodge. And it's nice to have a chance here to take a second and kind of master plan the site a little bit to best utilize all the spaces. And as dull as it might seem, the storage space is something we're really excited about because (laughs) right now we just have everything stuffed to the brim and not just our aircraft we have a substantial artifacts and um, manual collection and all kinds of other things that it will be nice to give those proper home and viewing areas at the new museum so and again opening to the public at Santa Maria Airport targeting 2025 Hopefully, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's dependent on permitting and fundraising, really. Mm-hmm. And if everything goes well and everything goes smoothly, then there's no reason why we couldn't be on that target for early 2025. But of course, you never know when you start one of these projects what kind of roadblocks you might hit. And we'll just keep people updated as we go. And um, hopefully, we will be here sooner rather than later. We couldn't be more excited about it. It's It's really a beautiful airport Mm -hmm. and a beautiful location the central coast has 
the ideal weather and beautiful open airspace as opposed to the congestion that we experience down in Chino. So. I told you my favorite aircraft. What's your favorite? Well, I have a soft spot for a particular P-51. Wee Willie is just, uh, he's a nice little airplane. He's kind of our um, front runner on a lot of things and he, just classic P-51. It looks like a toy sitting there, but it's, it's the real deal. I know Steve has his favorite yeah, from what's a your, pilot's perspective. What's your favorite, Steve? You know, I just love them all, but you know, that Sabrejet's my favorite airplane. I'm just Ever since I was a little kid, that that's really what got me into airplanes. To learn more about your world, Jane? For information about the expansion project at the San Maria Airport, we have a website dedicated to that, pofsantamaria.org. And you can learn all about project updates and what the vision looks like. There's a beautiful rendering of what the Building Alpha. For more information about the museum and our programming and our collection, planesoffame.org. Jane Hinton, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Steve Hinton, thank you so much. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, when do we go up? Yeah, (laughs) as soon as we're here, I promise you. (laughs) I love it. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from the Santa Maria Airport. We'll see you here at the new Plains of Fame Air Museum, presently on the drawing boards. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.